0: Good evening, and welcome to an all-new episode of What the Friday. We've got one parade down and one to go, and that was a lot of fun tonight, y'all. The People of Union are just awesome and, and friendly and so welcoming. Now, everything was pretty with the lights on the cars and floats, so it was a good boost to get the holidays, into the holiday spirit, if you aren't already. Now, if you listened in on Monday, you know that we started a mini-series on infamous crimes on of the 1980s, and we're calling it Totally 80s. Monday's episode was about the abduction and murder of six-year-old Adam Walsh. This coming Monday, we'll be continuing the series, and we're going to be talking about Henry Lucas and Otis Tool. Now, if you did listen in on this past Monday, you know that Tool confessed to Adam Walsh's abduction and murder, but he was guilty of so much more than that. So tune in because it's going to be a good one. Before we get started with tonight's What the Friday, I just wanted to give y'all an update on what we talked about on Wednesday. Wednesday's episode was dedicated to the school shooting in Michigan on Tuesday. Wednesday afternoon, a video surfaced on social media that was taken by a student in one of the classrooms. In the video, you can hear a male voice trying to persuade the teacher in the classroom to open the door. Now, at first, it was believed that the person at the door was the suspect in the shooting who has been identified as Ethan Crumbley. <coughs> and then, excuse me, y'all. I got, I woke up with some kind of mess this morning. But anyway, but later the sheriff's office stated that it was, in fact, a plainclothes officer. Now, a fourth victim did pass away on Wednesday morning at a Michigan area hospital. The fourth victim has been identified as 17-year-old Justin Schilling. Crumbley is being charged with four counts of first-degree murder, which includes premeditation, one charge of terrorism, seven counts of assault with intent to murder, and 12 counts of possession of a firearm and the commission of a felony. Other charges could be added to that. And the prosecution is actually looking into charges against crumbly's parents now that stems from the fact that crumbly's father had just purchased the gun the friday before the shooting i mean so it was like like four days before the shooting now on wednesday i mentioned that there weren't any known discipline issues at the school with crumbly but information released since then says that there had been some concerning behavior from the suspect the day before the shooting and then on the day of the shooting, his parents had been brought in for a meeting. Now, it has not been released what that concern behavior was. However, authorities went on to say that there was no record of the suspect being bullied. It is now believed that he shot at least 30 rounds as he walked down the school's hallway, aiming the handgun and firing at students. <coughs> Sorry, y'all. If the police hadn't stopped him when they did, the statistics from the shooting could have been a lot higher. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's already bad enough. Four is too many. But he had 18 rounds left. So, I mean, just imagine how much more he could have done if police had not stopped him when they did. I'm working on a bonus episode for Sunday to bring you the timeline of events and what we know about the shooting. But I just wanted to give you a little update tonight. Now something else I'd like to talk about is a sad story coming out of the um, Chester, South Carolina area. On Thanksgiving Day, 31-year-old Mary Rossborough fatally shot her 6-year-old son with a rifle when returning from deer hunting. There's not a lot of details right now, but it is known that after the first shot was fired, she tried reloading the gun to shoot again but her brother rushed into the room, tackled her, and prevented her from firing another round. He held her down on the ground until officers arrived and arrested her. The boy's grandparents rushed him to an area hospital, but he later passed away from his injuries. According to the report, Rosborough said that she wanted to send her son to heaven, and the report also noted that she does suffer from a drug addiction, but there was no indicators of a change in her behavior that would lead anyone to believe that she would kill her son. Now, she has been arrested and charged with murder and possession of a weapon during a violent crime. A hearing was held over the weekend, and Bond was denied for her. Now, this is something else that I hope to have more on later. Now, like I said, I woke up with some kind of Pride this morning, my, my youngest and my oldest had it last week, so I guess now it's mama's turn, but y'all please bear with me, because there was no way I was going to skip an episode if I could help it, you know. Anyway, so for tonight, we're going into the 80s decade, now some of y'all might be too young to remember this, but in 1992, the name Amy Fisher became a household name, not for good reasons. Hang on because I'm about to fill you in on all the deets about who Amy Fisher is and what she did. Welcome to What The Friday, an after-dark series presented by Mystery, Murder, and Magic. Listener discretion is advised. So just imagine this, if you will, Your doorbell rings while you're out back working on a project that you've been wanting to work on. You go through your house and you open the front door only to be confronted by someone saying that your husband has been having an affair with their little sister. And as you turn to go back in, you're shot in the head at nearly point-blank range. Well, no mar- Sorry, y'all. I'm probably going to be saying sorry a lot. But anyway, on May 19th, 1992, it happened to Mary Jo Buttafuoco. I mean, you just open the door and a few minutes later, you're shot. Was this a random shooting? Not at all. Who would prey on a seemingly innocent housewife and mom? Fortunately, Mary Jo survived the attack and I'm sure she thought it was some random crime at first. In the weeks that followed the incident, what Mary Jo learned about what she thought was a normal life would send her reeling. Amy Fisher was born on August 21, 1974, in Merrick, New York. One day in 1990, a 16-year-old Amy would go with her father to have his car worked on, and that's where she met 35-year-old Joey Buttafuoco soon the two started having a sexual affair and it has been said that Amy would damage her own car just so she would have an excuse to see Joey. Now let that sink in for a minute. A 16-year-old girl and a 35-year-old man. And this is a man who already had a beautiful wife at home. And that beautiful wife at home was also the mom of his kids. But you know, I guess he just wasn't satisfied with just the average life. In August of 1991, the affair was still going strong. Amy came to Joey and told him that she needed money. Well, instead of suggesting that she get a normal after-school job, or even loaning her the money, Joey suggests that she gets a job with an escort agency. And guess what? She does, y'all. Let me just stop right here for a minute. Now, I'm not perfect by any means. I have sinned my share of sins. But I just have to wonder what kind of mindset that you would have to be in to, one, suggest a teenage girl becomes a sex worker, and two, to be that teenage girl and go along with it. I'm sure she was totally smitten with Joey, and anything he said to her was like the gospel. And you know, I get it, she was young, she was impressionable, but it's one thing to have an affair with a grown married man, but a totally different thing to basically become a prostitute. Well, soon, their affair wasn't enough for Amy. She started pressuring Joey to leave Mary Jo, but Joey absolutely refused it. Was it because he loved her? Maybe. Maybe. But it was more than likely because he knew how much child support and alimony he'd have to pay. It was cheaper to stay married to Mary Jo and have a side chick. And it wasn't like Mary Jo and Joey's marriage was, you know, that troubled, okay? I mean, they did have their normal issues like any couple would, but they got through them. And actually, we're going to talk about the problems that they did have in their marriage in a moment. (sighs) when they got married back in 1977 they had been dating for just over 5 years at that point shortly after they were married disco became a big thing so they were clubbing with friends and having the time of their lives well soon after they joined the party scene they were introduced to cocaine now like many others in the 1970s they had no idea the dangers that are associated with cocaine. When Mary Jo found out she was pregnant, she gave up partying and the cocaine and just wanted to be a mom. Joey kept going with the party scene, though. His behavior became unpredictable. Sometimes he would be this calm, cool, collected, reasonable man, and then all of a sudden, he'd go on a bender, and when that binge was over, he'd come home apologize and tell Mary Jo it wouldn't happen again, but those words weren't true because it wouldn't be long before he would spin out of control again. A few years of this and Mary Jo gives birth to the couple's second baby. She really hoped that this would bring about a change in Joey, but boy was she wrong because things only got worse. Each time Mary Jo threatened him with divorce, he would change for a little while go right back to his old ways but Mary Jo stood behind him through it all during that time the couple moved from their home that they had been living in since I guess their marriage into a house in Massapequa she thought that getting him away from that old neighborhood would be the answer well finally in 1988 Joey agreed to go into rehab and after a month in he was a changed man Fifteen years and two children later, they were still together, and life was good—not perfect by any means, but good. Soon, Mary Jo would find out that Joey had exchanged one habit for another. The morning, that morning, sorry, in 1992, when trouble came crawling, Mary Jo had decided to go out on her back porch and do a little work. While she was painting, she heard the doorbell at the front door. And as she approached the door, she could see a girl standing on the other side. When she opened the door, the girl told her that her husband, Joey, was having an affair with her little sister. Well, I'm sure Mary Jo was just thinking, who the hell are you and who is your little sister? And naturally, she didn't believe the girl. I mean, it was just like so random. So the girl pulls out a t-shirt that she said Joey had left behind. She still didn't believe her, but she told the girl that she'd call Joey and tell him that she'd came by. When she turns to go back in the house, the girl pulls a gun and pulled the trigger. Mary Jo was struck near her right temple. The girl ran away, leaving Mary Jo in a pool of her own blood on her front porch a neighbor saw Mary Jo and called 911. She was rushed to the hospital, barely clinging to life. At the hospital, the doctors were unable to remove the bullet because it was too close to her spine. Mary Jo's family was told that she only had a 50-50 chance of pulling through, but miraculously, three days later, Mary Jo regained consciousness, and when she woke up, she saw her husband, Joey, and several police officers standing close by. They asked if she had any idea who had did this to her, but because she had a trait to being, she couldn't speak. She had to write her answers to their questions. She mentioned the t shirt and this caught Joey's attention. He turned to the police and told him or told them that He had only given one of those particular t-shirts away, and he said he had given it to Mr. Fisher's daughter, Amy. When Joey told the police the connection he had with Amy, he made it sound like she was a schoolgirl who was, like, obsessed with him, kind of like a psycho stalker chick. But the question remained, why would Amy Fisher want to harm or kill Mary Jo? And when Mary Joe asked that very question to Joey, he said that Amy was infatuated with him. Well, that same night, Amy Fisher was arrested, and once she was at the precinct, she was interrogated for twelve hours. What brought the interrogation to a close was her finally confessing to shooting Mary Joe. A few days later, Amy Fisher was charged with the attempted murder of Mary Joe Buttafuoco. Now, only two months later, Amy was sentenced. She had accepted a plea bargain and pled guilty to a lesser charge of aggravated assault. From that charge, she received a sentence of fifteen or of five to fifteen years in prison. Even though Amy was in jail for her crime, there was still the nagging question: Was Joey and Amy having an affair? Well, of course, Joey denied it, but no one believed him, including the police. Soon, Joey would be facing charges of his own, including statutory rape. DA was ready to pounce and had evidence to boot. One key piece of evidence was a hotel receipt, and that hotel was, um, receipt was dated while Amy was still 16 years old. It didn't list her, but, you know, he had no other excuse as to why he would be staying at a hotel. And it also included his signature. But he claims that was a forgery. He told the police this, and he told Mary Jo this, and Mary Jo chose to believe him. Why? Why? Because she felt the authorities were actually against her since they had let Amy take a plea bargain. Well, the justice system didn't believe him. And in November of 1993, Joey has sentenced, was, or was sentenced to six months in prison for the statutory rape of Amy Fisher. And even through his incarceration, Mary Jo stayed. I mean, she stood by her man partly because she really couldn't go anywhere due to all the medical issues that she came from you know that came from being shot well after 4 months Joey was released on good behavior once he was back home the family or at least Mary Joe tried to resume as normal of a life as she could but Joey wasn't quite on board for that he left for a trip to LA and while he was there Mary Jo received a call from their attorney that Joey had been arrested. And get this, it was for soliciting a prostitute. Joey went back to jail. And at this point, Mary Jo really started to see that the idyllic life that she thought they'd had never existed. But instead of calling it quits and filing for divorce, in 1996, the family moves to Los Angeles However, like with their previous move, this move to California didn't improve anything. And just a few years after moving, Mary Jo told Joey that she was just done. And honestly, she gave him more chances than I would have. But you really can't blame her for trying to hold on to her family, you know. In 2003, the couple officially divorced. Y'all, that was 11 years after Joey side put a bullet in his wife's head. I mean, Mary Joe tried to make it work for a long time. 11 years. Now, divorce changed nothing for Joey, though. 2003, he was arrested for f- insurance fraud. Five years later, a sex tape of he and his second wife were leaked. Mary Joe is doing much better. In 2005, a plastic surgeon performed surgery on her face some of the nerve damage has been repaired and her face is is more symmetrical now so what happened to that teenage girl who became known as Long Island Lolita in May of 1999 it was brought to the attention of the judge presiding over the case that Amy had not been properly represented represented gosh y'all I need to go back to bed by her attorney during the time that she pled guilty. So the judge cut her maximum sentence from 15 to 10 years and that made her immediately eligible for parole. She served only 7 years for shooting Mary Jo Buttafuoco. On September 10, 2003, Amy married former NYPD officer Louis Belera. For a fresh start, the couple moved to Palm Beach, Florida. They had three children before divorcing in 2015. And at some point, Amy moved back to New York because she said no matter where she went, she couldn't escape the attention. And I guess there's just no place like home. In 2007, a sex tape was released of Amy and her husband, Lewis having sex throughout their house and yard. Now, Amy says that Lewis released this tape to make money off of her and to get her into the entertainment industry. After that tape was released, Amy was offered several roles in pornographic films and to appear in stripped clubs. Lewis denied these accusations over the years. In 2007, the tabloids went crazy reporting that Amy and Joey had reconciled and were dating, but it was all just a publicity farce to make money. It's been reported that both parties were broke and needed money, so they used their history to cash in. Well, of course, the media and public loved it. I mean, who doesn't love a real-life soap opera? Over the years since her release from prison, Amy has released two books. The first one released was a memoir called If I Knew Then, and a second memoir was released called Amy Fisher, My Story. Well, that's all that I have time for tonight. Be sure to join me again in the morning for the Weekend Weird Files. Y'all have a good night.